Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 119. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we talked to Corey Maggiano about a recent paper that discusses some improved superpowers of oxygen isotope analysis. Let's get to it. All right, welcome to the show, everybody, and welcome, Paul. How's it going, man? Uh, it's going okay. We've been having um, an interesting last few days well, with my father-in-law, who's 91 uh, in health issues, but... Yeah, so if I go off into La La Land, it's from lack of sleep. But uh, otherwise, <laughs> it's okay. How, how have you been doing? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. We're going to have, have to have an episode where I I review the DJI Mavic Mini because we talked about that a while back. And uh, I've had a lot more playtime with it. And I I have a lot more things to say about it. Let's just put it that way. Cool. Look forward to that. Maybe maybe that'll be our next episode, our, our last recording of the year, <laughs> since we don't have a guest scheduled. Okay, so uh, let's get into our topic. As I mentioned in the intro and the bio, we're going to go straight in and talk about some some pretty fun stuff, some pretty interesting things. So, all right, to kick off this discussion, let me introduce Dr. Corey Maggiano. How's it going, Corey? It's going very well, thank you. How are you guys doing? Excellent, excellent. So we're just uh, trying to stay warm here in December uh, across the country. We're recording in three different locations, and that is the glory of technology right there. So we can bring you on to talk about oxygen isotope microanalysis. And let's just get right into this. So we have the paper linked in our show notes. If you want to go see that, it's from sciencedirect.com. So feel free to uh, use your browser on your tablet or device or computer, whatever you're on. Click on the link and follow along with the paper um, as we talk about this. So why don't you start and give us the abstract version of this paper and you know what it was about and what you guys did with it? First, I definitely wanted to say thanks for having me on this invitation. It was great to yeah. have a chance to sort of geek out is always good for me. Anything <laughs> uh, bones in archaeology, basically. So this project was sort of a, a marriage of archaeology, skeletal biology, and earth sciences even before the beginning of it, uh, even kind of in sort of pipe dreams discussions late nights around a table, typically with, with beer by that hour, <laughs> trying to figure out if we could sort of push the limits on sampling resolution in isotopic studies, specifically for bone. And the, the reason for that interest is that bone, as you're growing and adapting to your, to your life, is recording various aspects of that life, your, your growth and development, mechanical adaptation to your activities, and even certain elements of your environment itself. The trouble with that record, maybe you could think of it as being locked in layers, uh, kind of like tree rings, um, as a tree trunk grows in diameter, so a bone grows in diameter in a similar fashion, I guess. Mm -hmm. The trouble with that, though, is that it uh, is a record that gets constantly disrupted by growth and maintenance and repair, specifically a process called remodeling, kind of pac-mans away old bone and puts new bone 
in its place behind it. And that kind of hits the reset button on that location as far as mm. what it's doing and what it's what's recording about you. So the idea is find a place where that remodeling process happens the least and maybe in preserved lamellar primary bone, you can have a sequential deposition. And secondly, find a technique that allows you a small enough spot size for sampling that you can then access potentially aspects of chronology or temporal change in that isotopic signature over time. And so that's exactly what the the whole study was kind of designed to do and sort of push the limits at first on micro-milling this tissue in long bones. And after that, I needed a much bigger machine. So we shifted over (laughs) to using the secondary IMS spectrometry SIMS for short, which allowed us a very, very small spot size at at 16 microns. We're getting like a a 25 micron increment, which seems to be rounding out to about a measurement per month on on oxygen isotopic ratios. Mm. Wow. Which kind of changes the game as far as what questions you can ask about influence between populations, trade and travel, landscape usage, migration and mobility, pretty much anything that has to do with how you access the waters of your landscape and your climate. So what you're describing is that we all have a basic familiarity as archaeologists with studies of, of bones and teeth that give us a general sense of the, the climate that somebody uh, that somebody was living in. But you're saying that with this technique, you're able to divide up not just you know the, the the where the person for example lived but also like month by month where they lived how they lived the technique as it is standing right now shows the potential to move into those types of inquiries that are more personal hmm. rather wow. than populational and more temporal rather than summative i guess it is a nascent technique for sure um, that's the specific reason why i was shooting for kind of a focused paper I was really interested to kind of spur forward this discussion because it had been kind of presumed not to be possible. I mean, bone is microscopically pretty messy, Mm -hmm. but it turns out we have technology now that can permit access to those areas that are clean. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. Can you back up just for a second here? Because, I mean, oxygen isotope analysis has been around for a while in archaeology. And I think more famously, wasn't that used on like, let's see, the Iceman to determine where he came from and kind of how he ended up where he was? I, I think that was. And so I, I'm wondering, you know, what what led you guys to think uh, or at least to this technology here? And, and why has nobody thought of doing this before is really the big question there. You know, what what was that thought process? It's, it's always a question of like how how far back do I go to get to the beginning of the story? <laughs> so when I was but a child on my grandmother's knee kind of stuff. But, so basically exactly. when I was working um, on my doctoral dissertation, uh, my interest was along with my colleagues, sort of how does bone grow when it's not unhealthy? So a lot of microscopic study of bone is focused on either pathology or kind of counting osteons and, and moving through a kind of a interpretation of the, the life process. Those types of interpretations are really important to me, but I, I wanted to start with how does a bone get its shape? Because if everybody mm-hmm. interested in bone is interested in some kind of way or another in bone shape, and there are five or so different ways to go from stick straight to a certain curve, and all of them are hidden, so you can add bone at both ends on one side and take it away in the middle, or you could have the whole bone shifting sideways over time at different rates, and you could get the same exact bend but wouldn't know. So I wanted to kind of 
peel apart that hidden variation um, by tracking where's the primary bone actually getting put, which you can only know if you if you take a cross section. And uh, that's what that first figure in the in the in the paper is about is is giving a person an indication of the macroscopic space commanded by these processes of bone morphological change over time and how they indicate adaptation and, and development. Mm-hmm. And in doing that dissertation back in the 60s, Don Enlow and, and others, uh, Harold Frost, these are the sort of the beginnings of skeletal biology in, in a lot of ways, were very interested in, in these types of discussions about where this primary bone is getting put and they, they documented it quite well, but not in the perspective that we would have in archaeology, not from a perspective of what does it mean that it looks this way? And in, in asking that question, how do we how do I measure it? How do I tell where it's at? How does it vary between people or even does it? I realized that it's a it's a heck of a lot of tissue. I mean it's mm-hmm. sometimes it's eighty percent of the entire cortex on one side of the bone, which seems to be indicating that the bone is just chugging like a train sideways. Basically your humerus, the whole thing shifts sideways as it's getting longer and as it's getting fatter mm-hmm. uh, through a process called modeling drift. And uh, what that means is that the medullary cavity has to pack on bone on one side or else it gets dumped off the backside of drift. It was, like <laughs> your whole, the, the whole of your bone will just open up on one side of your humerus um, and, and then you're, it'll, it'll fracture. So instead, weirdly, the medullary cavity has to mirror that growth and resorption process to stay centric. And when it does that, it leaves a wake of bone um, on the lagging side of drift. And that bone is primary. It is not very highly disturbed. It's vascularized a little differently than periosteal tissue. And so it's a little more pristine. And then more so, it's endocortical. So it actually doesn't receive a lot of the strain that the outside of the bone receives, which would indicate it's necessary to turn that tissue over and, and heal it. So since it's more pristine, it leaves this large macroscopic incremental feature that's predictably locatable and preserves in some individuals way past the fifth decade of life. We've seen it even in centennials on occasion. It's a little sliver by then. But so after having found out that there's that there's that much incremental tissue there and that it's relatively undisturbed, I was at a conference watching Christine White give a, a talk on the possibilities of, of sort of chasing osteons with lasers in attempt to mm. get at a time series or at least a, a representation of time variability in isotopic profiles and talked with her afterwards really excitedly because the prospects for sort of chasing an osteon are incredibly daunting as we were discussing. The prospects for not chasing at all, but you know, shooting this giant feature in something like a humerus or a femur are a lot better and um, would give you a lot longer time series without the need to sort of undulate and branch along with an individual osteon, which you're unlikely to ever uh, be able to do unless you have some serious equipment. I can't even really imagine it. So (laughs) in that conversation, you know, was born this notion of if there's this deposit of, of a large enough deposit of primary tissue, less disrupted. And if we can get a sample, um, resolution small enough, then we would theoretically be able to access that entire deposit of tissue. And she asked me about how much tissue it represents. And I said, well, there's really not much of a way to tell because these are rates that are measured in non-human animal studies. And uh, 
there aren't people doing that, you know, tetracycline labeling in bone for like 10 years. Like that's not an experiment that you can really get a approval to do. Um, <laughs> so there's not really an ability to time the growth of bone over those durations. But I said, you know, gut feeling, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's between five years and, and 10 years on occasion. And mm -hmm. she just lit up. So we tried to make that happen uh, at the University of Western Ontario with a cobbled together uh, postdoc once I wrapped up. We just kind of all, all jumped in the boat and tried to make it work. So That's fascinating. Um, I was wondering, what, what age range, of, of uh, if we're looking at human bones, what age range would this be applicable? Is it just you know through the major growth up through adolescence, or does it work, does it continue as a process on through adulthood that you could still look at an adult's, uh, an adult's diet, I guess, uh, with this method? So it's going to be, it's going to work better in anybody who's actively packing on primary bone, mm -hmm. um, which is going to favor uh, the youthful population. That said, though, there's kind of an assumption that once you hit skeletal maturity, you're done doing that. Um, and that assumption isn't necessarily true at all, depending on the bone. Um, in in uh, men, especially up until the middle of their 30s, they're, they're packing on a pretty decent amount of upper body um, bone, uh, humeral, shoulder, all the, that whole area is still uh, adapting. And that's because sort of the skeleton's catching up with muscular development, you know, with good nutrition that hopefully comes from settling out in your in your roles in society and other things like that, you you have a change in those in those areas of the body. So anywhere where there's still uh, sequential bone being put down um, would be fine. Otherwise, you do have the introduced question of: Are we sampling a ten year span or a five year span from earlier in this individual's life, or was it perimortem? Mm. And there are some little indicators that, you know, get used as rough rules of thumb by histomorphologists. You know, if if the last layer of the bone on the endocortex, for example, is roughly contiguous, in other words, that last layer is fairly well, I know, of course, this has to do with pres preservation as well. That is a situation that's arguable to be perimortem because otherwise you see these sort of little undulations, additions and removals of bone and little patchwork pieces along it. Um, that's a very common thing. And then also with, like I said, lack of preservation, that's going to kind of go away. So you'll be stuck with this question of, we don't know exactly which time segment we're at here. If you're in a younger individual, though, it'll be very likely uh, in a 25 to 30, even maybe 35 year old, that you have uh, a representation of time up until that point. Now, as to is the representation of the time, is the increment chronological, right? Uh, because it can obviously be in increments that slow down or speed up. And that's one of the most fascinating, I think, potential applications of, of this work moving forward is discussing growth rate and the interactions between human health, the environment and, and climate. Okay. Well, on that note, uh, that sounds like a good point. We generated a lot more questions, I think, just now, <laughs> which is a, which is a good thing. That's what science is supposed to do. So let's go ahead and take our first break, and we will come up, come back, and wrap up this discussion with Dr. Corey Maggiano uh, on oxygen isotope microanalysis. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic 
transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 119. And we're talking with our guest, uh, Dr. Corey Maggiano. And... Corey, we were talking about before uh, the type of research you guys are doing, some of your techniques and, and how you're getting these answers. But let's take a step back. And and now that we have that framework, how does oxygen isotopes, or I guess how do oxygen isotopes get, get into your bones? Like where are these coming from in the environment that they can actually tell us something about where and how these people lived and what they were eating and things like that? Where does this stuff come from? Yeah, sure. So um, I promised myself I wouldn't sort of use this cliche, but I'm just going to. It's like <laughs> something gravitational. You know, you, you are what you drink, I guess, in this case. And nice. so you have sort of tissues that are formed from your environment. You just run around your environment and encounter, you know, your sustenance and build yourself from it. And, and that means that in the case of water, you're going to get the lion's share of that oxygen from that water. Um, mm-hmm. obviously it comes also from breathing and some other places, food as well. Mostly the oxygen isotopic profile of your bone is, is a proxy for drinking waters mm-hmm. and those drinking waters, um, change in different regions. And we probably don't want me to go into all of the details, but let's start with two. For example, let's say where, where are you at right now, by the way, geographically, I, I'm in Reno and Paul's in New York city. Okay. Excellent. So, um, well, let's pick someone in landlocked middle America. Okay. Because in comparison to anyone coastal, that individual will be experiencing rainwaters that have traveled much further from their original sort of oceanic source or water or, Mm -hmm. and barring large lakes and all that kind of thing. And so what will have happened is more of the heavier of the two isotopes will have rained out by the time that person gets that water and therefore their isotopic signature will be different than yours or mine because it will it will be reflective of that differential sort of evaporative and condensation process uh, mm-hmm. involved in the rain cycle. Likewise, your oxygen is going to be different uh, in your drinking waters, whether it's a warmer or a cooler season. So if you're enjoying a cup of coffee, well, maybe not a cup of coffee, boiled water and all that, but if you're just having an iced tea, let's say, in the summertime, that water has had more of a chance to um, to undergo evaporation, and therefore that water would be relatively heavier, having lost its lighter 
uh, oxygen to evaporation. And that okay. that record, as long as you have a sensitive enough piece of equipment, gets recorded in your bone. Hmm. Okay, so let me unpack that a little bit because that part confuses me a little because – I guess, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying about how the oxygen uh, levels in the water changes because the heavier, lighter oxygens, you know, they come out and in, in, at different stages, but, and with different processes, but how can we actually tie that to like, say the prehistoric environment when we, I mean, we know some about the environment, but it, it seems like these are really, really wide and far reaching processes and not hyper localized processes unless something crazy was going on in one river or lake or something like that where people were getting their drinking water. But if they are doing things to it, and let's say later on in the archaeological record when they're making beer and wine and doing other stuff and maybe even drinking less and less water, uh, less less pure water, I should say, less pure drinking water and, and using water made into other things. How do we take the information that you're getting in the bones and we really define that into uh, into these environments? And I guess the the side question to that is, what kind of research have we done that we know that these environments are producing these sorts of ice, oxygen isotopes that we can then match those up with what's reading in the bones and then say, yes, this matches up with that. Therefore, dot, 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 you lived here. <laughs> right, exactly. So, I mean, uh, this is hugely complicated as far as yeah. sort of an eco-geographic question. And certain regions are going to be more telling in their sort of oxygen um, geographic maps than others. And of course, there will be multiple ways of achieving one given oxygen isotopic ratio. So basically, your question is infinitely interesting because it, it would take a lot of study in different aspects, both ecological, um, geological, archaeological, etc., and in human behavior uh, in order to um, truly provide a specific assessment of any given oxygen isotopic profile over time. That's exactly the, the science that I hope starts to grow from this. There hasn't really previous to these types of inquiries been much of a reason to be worried about very, very small fluctuations in oxygen isotopic hmm. um, ratios from one spot to another. I mean, in this in this study alone, we sampled something like four or five hundred different assessments of oxygen within a few millimeters. So um, wow. this just hasn't really been necessary before. You've never needed to be able to account for it. Yeah, but did she drink Avion water this week or not? <laughs> um, but you're exactly right that that does matter um, now. I mean, potentially, yeah. don't forget where this could be in 20 years. Mm -hmm. That little joke won't run because it'll be real. <laughs> uh, who knows where the end of resolution on these types of techniques will go. But for right now, the, the paper currently is sort of provocatory. It's just saying, don't forget, we actually have these tools now. So we can we can we can actually ask a question like, OK, we don't know everything going on, but do we see predictable rise and fall in oxygen isotopic compens uh, composition that would indicate rough seasonality, for example? Mm -hmm. And after having stated, yeah, this is basically one of the only things that would be sort of most parsimonious in this in this context or because we have all this other information that well describes it, we would be able to then settle into the next you know, sort of feast of questions. Is this spike meltwater? Is that spike this other thing? I mean, these are questions that are almost unfathomable for me right now. And they're not, they're not questions that we're sort of used to asking in archaeology, 
you know, how many times did she go with the trading caravan seemingly to the, <laughs> you know, from the Nile River Valley out to the oasis? Yeah. I mean, those are those are inquiries that that are sort of mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah, they really are. So is it then safe to say that your, your study here that you published is, is something of a proof of concept for, uh, for a direction that future research should go and not necessarily throwing, uh, giving any conclusions uh, about the, uh, the, the, the bones that you were looking at here, but how one could look at uh, another group of bones in the future and start to build out a whole new segment of, uh, of archaeology, of archaeological science? Yeah, I would say that's a, a very safe uh, summary. The, the the intention here is definitely exploratory. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you know, if we had a perfect storm of the exact right tissue, the exact right age of the individual, and we have you know no problems with diagenesis, and we can show that if the bone is roughly similar to what we might recover in an archaeological context, in that it's dry and um, hopefully well enough preserved for oxygen isotopic analysis, and we have this new technique that will get at that scale of inquiry, what could we theoretically do is only a question you could ask after you find out, hey, you could you can do this. You can get a resolution of 16 microns. You know, you could maybe have a measurement every month. Um, now, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of knowledge that needs to come together from very, very different fields. I mean, a lot of this stuff is ecological and human ecological. A lot of it's climatological. A lot of it is skeletal biological. I mean, we really... We had a, we thought we had a really great grasp on, you know, primary lamellar bone growth. It's about the most simple thing you can talk about in bone until you start really caring. Yeah, but didn't this lamella disappear just now? <laughs> and up here it's not there, but down there it is there. And what did that just do to our signal? And, you know, you're only sampling seven lamella or something like that per spot. So, you know, it's it's pretty serious need for future research for sure. Yeah. Speaking of future research, you, you've kind of alluded to some of this, but what are some applications or other things that maybe could be invented or developed based on what you guys have been talking about or, or furthering other types of technologies and making them more refined like what you've done here? Uh, what are some applications like that or, or further refinements do you see coming in the future or do you hope to see coming in the future? <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think maybe both of you have even already kind of instinctively touched on on the one. So I think if I have my finger on that pulse, I'd say diet, right? Mm -hmm. So if we could get something similar going for carbon or nitrogen or both of them, now the scales wouldn't be the same. You know, the relative abundance of, of, of the isotope itself is, is an interesting factor. But yeah, I mean, some kind of um, treatment uh, that would expand the, the, the inquiry to include other stable isotopes would be amazing. Yeah. Um, we don't have great known controls or standards for using SIMS on bone in general. There's a lot of technical knowledge that we need to gain moving forward in order to increase our accuracy and, and make better interpretations. And so that's an, an area of completely different sort of expertise. That would also include kind of well, archaeologically as well, known, known positive or negative controls. I mean, I kind of joked about the Nile River versus um, oasis kind of thing. But in one case, you have, uh, you know, seasonal climate. And in the other place, you're drinking well water. And that well water should be flatlined. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, as far as oxygen goes, it should just be, you know. <laughs> and so that person then moves, you know, every couple of months um, towards the Nile River Valley. Theoretically speaking, you should you should be able to see some change like that. Now, knowing that that's what happened or not depends on a whole host of other factors. 
But those positive and negative controls are are now something that we should go hunt down. We know we have the, the right technique. Uh, we know we have the right scale of inquiry. So, so all that would be um, very interesting. Mm-hmm. For me, though, personally, I am incredibly interested in ways that we can use this to also estimate or interpret impacts on on human health. Mm-hmm. So there's a section in the paper that deals with lines of arrested growth. And these are microscopic features that we've talked about for a very, very long time. Um, in some other non-human animals, they indicate you know, seasonality or annulations, you know, yearly cycles, sometimes day-night cycles, all kinds of different cycles. In humans, seemingly not so much, but theoretically, these pauses in growth can happen because of serious um, health stress hmm. or, you know, dietary stress, other, other kind of um, aspects of stress that would be measured by the body in a decrease of, of net growth during that time period. So we basically have these spots where we have either slower bone growth, like you mentioned, or, or none if you're hurt bad enough. Yeah. This individual that we um, assessed in the current project has uh, many lines of arrested growth. Um, some of them are what I would call partial, and I, I'm sort of not convinced that they're indicating sort of a general health trend because of where they exist. But others are going through the entire feature itself, uh, running the course of that endosteal deposit. Mm-hmm. and. You know, they seem to indicate significant amounts of lost time. If you sort of analyze the the rises and falls in this sinusoidal pattern, there are areas where you know two bumps seem a little too close, and that could indicate lost time. Uh, how much lost time is a completely different question. Yeah, yeah. I'm just uh, trying to wrap my head around the variables associated with this because uh, you know you mentioned, for example, rainwater and uh, you know distance from the ocean and presumably the the primary source of many many rain clouds aside from big lakes and stuff like you said. But e- even that, you know, you have to know so much about the paleo or prehistoric environment to say, okay, here's kind of what was going on to then be able to suss out. Yeah, this individual likely lived and did these things in this area. So, and then the rivers and how things change and how the environment changes and just all that stuff. But mm-hmm. I think one of my last questions uh, before we get to a couple final ones at the end of the segment here is like some other disciplines, uh, I know there's libraries, I guess, for say radiocarbon levels and there's dendrochronology libraries for tree ring dating and things like that. Yep. Do you know if there are say isotopic oxygen isotopic level libraries around? So when you start gathering this data, you can start correlating that to these other places around the world where saying, hey, maybe this I mean, presumably the individual where they were found is where they were lived, but maybe not in all in all cases. So you, you kind of localize yeah, it regionally right. there, but then in that area, are there these libraries that you can go to databases to, to help start cor- uh, correlating these things? Uh, yeah, definitely. So um, these are all things that are under constant building um, in our science. So in general, most of what we talked about is fairly broad stroke type mm-hmm. um, maps of latitude, longitude, altitude, and things like this and how it would affect oxygen isotopic uh, composite composition but regionally yes um, um, as information is necessary in a certain area with whatever fidelity for the question at hand that information gets stored and to the degree that we begin making use of it it will be stored and shared more effectively right now there are places where if you want to ask an oxygen isotopic based question bioarchaeologically, you'll have to start by mapping the local 
waterways and, and, and making the exact argument and complexity that you're, that you're pointing to apparent. And after that, your interpretations, um, as long as your science is sound, are you know, much, much better informed mm-hmm. than, for example, using a broad stroke for an entire geographic region. And those maps hopefully will come together, um, especially as techniques that use a higher resolution or, or will require that that fidelity, that landscape sort of fidelity mm-hmm. you're pointing to. Nice, nice. So, hey, we're wrapping up here, Corey, but I just want to highlight the uh, the uber collaborative nature of science. <laughs> I like to point out that people aren't working in a vacuum. <laughs> You're not like the lone scientist working in a lab, right? So um, what are the disciplines came together to help make this paper possible? There's an incredible list of people that are acknowledged at the end of this paper, but what other major scientific disciplines came together to help make all this work? Yeah, I'd say we, we, we joked all the time about the Holy Trinity <laughs> in this paper was, was archaeology, uh, skeletal biology, and earth sciences. Yeah. And uh, and for all that to come together, you know, in one in one small space of bone for an inquiry like this mm-hmm. was just really exciting. And to really see the necessity, because knowing that you could use this type of a technique in general and other applications doesn't get you to this sort of result. You have to also know quite a lot about um, how bone grows and interpreting it and, and, and targeting that tissue, frankly. Mm-hmm. And knowing both of those things doesn't help you at all with archaeological inquiry <laughs> unless you're also equally versed there. So my colleagues, uh, Christine White, Richard Stern, Sal Peralta, and, and Fred Longstaff were monuments of information within their respective fields. I think Sal would agree he might have felt like the odd man out <laughs> uh, being a political scientist, but he, um, he interprets time series data. And archaeologists don't often need to interpret a lot of time series data and similar sort of fidelities. And we entertained all kinds of notions of stats that we might need to use. And they all infuriated him because as you pointed out at one point, I think during our conversation, what if time isn't time? You know, what if, <laughs> what if there are small disruptions and what if there's slowdowns and speed ups and, and this tends to ruin sort of mathematical predictions. But uh, we, we, we really all needed to be in the room on this. And uh, until, until I was there, in Canada and even afterwards working on the analysis here at the University of West Georgia and the write-up. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of tight, tight cooperation. I was just going to reiterate what Chris was saying, that uh, in the way that this brings together different disciplines that normally wouldn't necessarily be in the same uh, in the same paper, right? It, it almost feels like, uh, you know, the origins of carbon-14 for our field. You know, you have to know about the uh, atmosphere, you have to know about uh, biology, and you have to know uh, physics and chemistry and how they all interplay to, to come up with a new way of looking at time. And, uh, and this is interesting. This is very, uh, very cutting-edge stuff, I think. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And and I think the only thing the only other thing I would ask is that uh, Paul and I get to do the first interview after you guys accept your Nobel Prize. So um, when we (laughs) 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 you could just keep us on your keep us on your contact list. (laughs) That'd be great. Um, All right. Well, uh, thanks, Corey. This has been fascinating. And uh, if you guys you know, even even the the other disciplines associated with this. You know, feel free to contact us again. So contact us again, and with uh, any other developments that have led off of this or anything like that, we'd be fascinated and and happy to talk to you guys. Yeah, absolutely. You've worked hard for what you have: your money, your assets, your four hundred one k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 119. And before we get to the app of the day segment, we just had a a, a great, I wish we were recording conversation with uh, with Corey <laughs> right as we hit stop recording. Really cool. Yeah. And I just wanted to mention, because something he was pretty fired up about is is that Paul and I were really talking about the the regional implications of the, uh, of the isotopes. And I think that's because that's what we're used to from hearing about isotopes is like, where did they come from? What did they do? But he was pointing out and didn't really get a chance to, to explain this in the actual interview that what the paper really showed was how they can drill down on time and how they can really get down into a time variation thing here and say this, you know, we, we talked about the monthly aspect of it, but I don't think we talked about it enough. Right. So I just wanted to, Mm -hmm. to point out when you read the paper, you'll, you'll get it, but we just, you know, our questions just didn't really flow in that direction or we didn't have enough time to get there. So um, I wanted to point that out because Corey's pretty fired up about it. (laughs) Yeah. For a good reason. It's, it's, it's really exactly the possibilities that this opens up. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, well, let's kick off our app of the day. And Paul, why don't you take us through some crazy random coding thing or whatever it is, or database something? I don't even know. Database thing. Wow. Nice. (laughs) You actually guessed it. (laughs) Okay. So uh, I don't have an app per se, because um, I've just been killing apps off my phone lately. I don't have anything new to talk about, but it it dawned on me. I should actually mention one of my favorite uh, tools that I use. I use it absolutely daily uh, in my job. It's called SQL Pro. It's a, it's a, client mac os only it's open source and it's a client for mysql i think also probably maria db because that's very close to mysql mm-hmm. um and i just wanted to put it on people's radars uh, if they don't already know about it and they're using uh and they're using a sql a mysql database uh, on a mac okay so i've limited it down to three people um <laughs> <laughs> it is yeah. Head and shoulders, the best uh, client that I've used. Uh, I've used it for a number of years. I'm actually uh, using development versions of it. The version that's available from the main download on the website is uh, is a f- couple years old, but it is under active though slow development. Um, it is, like I said, an open source project, and it basically allows you to do all the, the management that you could do with something like the MySQL work bench, uh, which is what MySQL itself puts out. But it just does it in a much more clean, comprehensive little way. Um, so the main view lets you, you know, log on to the server of your choice, uh, attach to the database of your choice, see the... Um, see the uh, the tables get a uh, a spreadsheet view of the contents of the tables open up a query or you know all the same sort of stuff that you're used to from any other of a million different database clients uh, but it just does it all f- a little bit faster a little bit smoother and it has far and away the best import and exports that i've ever seen uh, on any of the clients that i've used uh, you know so i do a lot of imports of uh, of sql tables between or you know entire tables or schemas from one database to another uh, or one install to another 
other rather, and uh, in a lot of exports of uh, CSV files to then move from one system to another. And it just does it right almost always. And uh, the only thing that I wish it did differently is I wish that it could attach to PostgreSQL uh, databases and probably uh, SQLite. If it could do those, then I would be in heaven with this because it's, it's been just an invaluable tool for years for me. And so mm-hmm. people should know about it. SQL Pro. Nice. Well, there you go. We'll have that link in the show notes, of course. So, all right. So mine is something that uh, I don't even know how to describe, to be honest, uh, as far as cost and all that stuff goes, but it's called Noom, N-O-O-M. And if you've seen this, uh, they're they're blasting out Facebook and I don't know about Twitter, but definitely Instagram, things like that with uh, sponsored ads. And I've been seeing them for months and months and months. And basically what this is for, they if you go to their website, noom.com, M-N-O-O-M.com, you'll see two things and it's losing weight or getting fit. And basically what it is, I don't want to say it's like a diet program or application, but it's more of a, a lifestyle readjustment application or so they would explain it. But basically what this is, is trying to trade because I've always had, anybody who's seen me knows that I've always had problems with, uh, with weight, right? I mean, that's just my ongoing thing. I... I, I have a Peloton bike and I've biked, you know, uh, many days in a row now and I bike every day. And yet I still just it's not like I'm eating a 4000 calorie diet. I don't know what it is. So I need some sort of mental or or some other readjustment. And I've done lots of different things. I don't really diet um, because I know that those don't work. I'm, I'm I know enough about science to know that changing your habits for a short period of time is not going to do it. (laughs) So having a behavioral or psychological or attitude adjustment is really what you need to maintain um, a healthy lifestyle. And that's what Noom is focused on. I've been, uh, I joined the program just in the trial period and I think I'm coming out of that now. So I'm almost uh, about two weeks into it. And right now I do like the way that it works and the app, when you have it on your phone, uh, you log in, uh, it'll prompt you. It'll ask you how you want to be prompted too. Do you want to be pestered? Anything like that? Um, you have like a goal specialist that will text you within the Noom app. And I'm, I haven't figured out whether this is a human or not yet. I've tried, I tried quizzing it a few times and, and it's, it's pretty good if it's not a human, <laughs> but, uh, um, <laughs> so it passes the Turing test. It does a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it, it even passes it in the sense that it's, it's highly delayed too, because I know they're on the East coast. Um, cause the person came on and said, Oh, I'm in New York city or something like that. And I was like, okay, but are you giving me canned responses or real responses? So I've tried to ask it questions that, that require a non-canned response and I've gotten them back. And um, so anyway, uh, you know, they're not like sitting there at your beck and call, but basically the whole idea behind the application is every day you have a couple things that are ongoing, like, like doing a weigh-in and logging your meals and doing stuff like that. But they have a different way of looking at meal logging. I, I've used my fitness pal for years um, to log meals and track calories, but they really focus on calorie density. So for example, the weight versus the calories of the food. If it's a lower calories, but a heavier food, like something that has a lot of water in it, like like fruit, you know, like uh, grapes or something like that, then it's green. If it's a lower calorie density, which means it has more calories and less weight, like say, I don't know, candy or something like that, then uh, it's red. So it goes from green, yellow, and red. And they just say, you know, limit the number of red foods, have the green foods. They don't say red foods are bad, but you just got to limit them because they don't give you a full feeling, right? You get fewer calories and you don't feel full, which means you want to eat more. And that's basically Mm. how they're kind of changing that behavior. Um, Because I haven't seen it actually depicted like that before. Uh, and then they go through these, there's, there's usually a handful, they call them articles that you click through for the day. And they're, they're teaching you these like psychology tricks and all these other things. And they're, they're interactive. They're really well written. Um, they're not written 
in a in a boring way. They're written sort of a funny, humorous way sometimes. And I, I just I like the way the presentation is. I don't know if it's going to do anything for me. I don't know if it's going to help me, but uh, I thought I would mention it because I know a lot of people out there. You don't have to be 400 pounds to struggle from you know weight gain or anything like that. People at all levels do in you know depending on your psychology and how you look at it. But so I thought I would mention it and see if it would help anybody else out there. So yeah, my mom just uh, told me yesterday on the phone that she just signed up for it. So yeah, have a comparison, your experience with her, with it versus hers. So uh, maybe uh, circle back in a couple months. Yeah, absolutely. I will tell you that uh, um, it, it still requires the same thing that any program uh, would, and that's you to actually follow it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's the hard part though right like it's saying oh you know do this and do that and it's i mean it's not like that but it's it's giving you ideas and pointers on how to do things but then you know i'm reading through all these things on how to how to you know analyze what you're eating and how to how to look at uh, a thing of food and kind of determine the portions if you don't have the guide in front of you like if you're out at a restaurant or something like that and trying to figure out your portion control and and not eating everything on your plate and then i've had a series of like holiday parties like three or four in a row with different things that i belong to and you can't you can't determine anything at those things like i don't know how many glasses of no. wine i had i don't know how many little candies i had <laughs> you know <laughs> maybe i know how many glasses of wine I had, but <laughs> I had one more. Exactly. <laughs> Just exactly. One more. Well, like for example, this one we were at with my civil air patrol group, it was actually at a, at one of our, uh, one of our members houses, but it was just a whole bunch of different people, but they brought this, um, Irish whiskey, Tullamore Dew, um, Irish whiskey. And I'll tell you what, that stuff is delicious. And every time I turned around, one of my guys was just like filling my glass. Like it wasn't even empty yet. And he was just putting more in my glass. I literally have no much, no, I concept of how much of that I drank. It's like, how do you, how do you write that down? You know, I'm just calling it a, and this is what they say in the thing here too. They're like, don't focus on the losses because that's going to happen. And I'm just calling this whole like last four days a loss and uh, we'll move on from there. But then of course, Christmas is coming up, going to be with family. So (laughs) who knows? Who knows? Uh. I I know. Yeah. So we'll see. Anyway, that's mine. The link link for that is in the show notes. But really, uh, it, it gets a little irritating. I'll tell you that the the first thing, if you just want to know how much it costs, you can't find that anywhere. Um, I will tell you that the two week is a free trial. They waive the setup fee, but then they they ask you, uh, they give you three choices basically, and they said, hey, it basically costs this much money to set up your account. Which one do you want to pay? And it goes from like five dollars to eighteen dollars, and they just give you a choice. <laughs> I was like. Well, shit, if you're giving me the choice, I give you the $18. So I paid that for the for the setup, basically, of the account and all that stuff. And then, to be honest, I don't even know what the monthly is going on because you can add on a bunch of different things. You can add on like meal planning and like an exercise plan and stuff like that. That's not part of the base thing that you're getting. But to even see any of that, you've got to click on whether or not you want to lose weight or get fit here on the main webpage. And it's similar on the app when you sign up and then answer this whole questionnaire about yourself and then enter your email address. And then, you know, they send you a thing, you confirm that and then it all comes back. And then near the end, you, you end up finding out what the price is. And again, I don't even remember. So I'll find out when I look at my credit card statement, I guess. But, uh, it's, uh, it wasn't enough for me to say no, apparently. So yeah. Uh, but it's nowhere on their website. I'm looking on it right now. And you can't find pricing anywhere. So I'm sure if you emailed mm-hmm. support, you'd find out. But yeah, anyway, they put a lot of science in it, a lot of references, things like that. So I like that. But yeah, anyway, that's what I've got. Okay. Good, well, good luck. Yeah. With that. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Good luck coming into the holidays and everything with an Italian Catholic family. I'm sure I'll lose a ton of weight over the next week. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the, oh, I got you there. We got the Italian Catholic uh, alcoholic family. Oh my God! Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, a good thing is we're staying with my sister-in-law, and she has a Peloton, and that's how I first came in contact with it. So I started an account on her bike, and then over in May, in May we got our own bike. Um, but my account's still on her bike as well, so I have no excuse if I don't continue my workouts. Let's just put it that way. So, yeah. All right. So. That's it for today. Um, maybe next time we'll we'll talk some more talk some more drones at the end of the year recording. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But because uh, I definitely want to talk about the Mavic Mini and my experiences with that so far, and uh, and how mm. that's gone. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thanks a lot, Paul. All right. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, and hopefully everybody had a good holiday because this is releasing the day after Christmas, but we're, of course, recording it uh, a week before Christmas. So, um, hopefully everything went well, and uh, everybody have a happy New Year. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Oh.